Hello to everyone tuned in. This is episode one of the Godspeak podcast hosted by the Archon and the Greek. Over the next 10 episodes, you can expect to hear conversations on everything from ancient religions to the rise and fall of civilizations. So if that's the kind of thing that's of interest to you, then as your luck would have it, you're in the right place. We're going to be jumping into the first dedicated topic concerning those things and shed some light on some of the finer points. So um, let's just make the introduction short and get straight to it. Godspeak has no political, religious, or corporate affiliations and is completely managed by myself, the Archon. So I hope you enjoy the show and thanks again for listening. Hi there, Greek. Hi there. I hope that today's topic has some lore to it, because I remember you saying some months back, maybe two months back, that uh, you wanted to talk about ancient civilizations and stuff like that. So the floor is going to be open to develop whatever lines of exposition you had in mind, unless your appetite has waned for that topic. A little bit of both. Uh, If you look at current events, you wonder if people were ever aware of anything that came before them. Uh, and we're talking about on the Pope's work schedule, uh, the fall, late fall of 2020, right? And I think we haven't discussed what I mean by the Pope's work schedule, but if anyone asks you what time it is and you say anything between January and December or Monday through Friday, you're probably a de facto servant of the papacy. Whether you know it or not is irrelevant. That is a taken as a serious fact, by the way. Um, for those who did listen to the last episode of Goth, uh, Greek Speak podcast, they would have gotten some of the timekeeping references. So it's it's not exactly the first time, but yeah, I'm sure that we'll develop some of that as well on the God Speak variant. Um, but I think one of, one of your most memorable quotes is, for me anyway, mm-hmm. first in time is first in line. So I thought a good start to the series would be to look at some of the ancient settings that left an account of what the unseen realm is like. And so we'll be looking at how people in antiquity understood the supernatural and how that changed as history progressed. So let's start with the idea of ancient society in general, I think. Knowledge about the ancient world today is largely monopolized by academia and archaeologists, and the average person doesn't really have much of an interest in it, kind of what you alluded to. So as somebody who took it upon themselves to become learned in that ancient history, what have you found that ancient history or ancient orders can illuminate about high order subjects? Well, let's uh, let's 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 start. Let's go right to the end uh, of possible several or many episodes, and let's go to the end, and and everything we talk about will be an infill. Uh, what goes around comes around, and if you look at the end of uh, even this modern society, it is going to end up being um, of a. Uh, some cities, very few cities, but a scattered rural population that is basically agrarian. Think about that for a moment. That has that is basically the the template for most ancient settings, right? Some cities, and uh, most of the population is scattered and agrarian in villages and towns. And this is how this modern society will end up as well. And I would even highly recommend that the consideration of any cities is uh, would be just a forethought and not a real thought. Uh, but that's another discussion. So let's just close the entire series of Godspeak or, or the podcast by just saying that. You'll end up being agrarian uh, once again. What does that mean? Uh, lack of um, heavily commercialized capitalistic industry. The industry uh, that brings things to people uh, as they require will not be heavily capitalized and industrial, will be more locally produced. This is how things were back in the ancient times. Now, one can say, well, is the modern, let's say, example more progressive or let's not, not in a political term, or is it more advanced? And I would suggest it isn't because the quality of life has been sacrificed and diminished greatly. And uh, it's very difficult for people to realize that because they have nothing else to contrast it with. But if you just uh, have anyone reiterate their what they consider to be challenges in life, it'll be self-evident that they have a very fairly 
I should say, I'll just say very low quality of living generally. Um, so when we go back to the ancient culture, ancient cultures, I should say, I think one could raise the question mark and say that they were aware of this, but uh, chose for a higher quality life in most cases, even if it means living in a mud hut with a dirt floor. So this is kind of a, the contrast that I could set that we could probably end up finishing off with is that the contrast is a contrast of ideologies uh, more than what we see being performed physically. Mm. Um, but um, as far as being content to live within certain constraints in the ancient world, I mean, the people who were living in mud huts, I think, had to accept the state of affairs. I mean, if we sort of use the upper tier of those societies as the standard and look at the sort of the kings and the castles, people would say, well, you're saying that they chose to be like that, but surely they wouldn't have chosen to be without conveniences. The person living in a castle still wouldn't have access to any ready form of heating. He had to create a whole infrastructure just to keep himself warm during the winter. Whereas today we can just go out and get heaters. Surely they wouldn't have sacrificed convenience for whatever sublime higher order that they had at that point, which we don't have today. Uh, to some degree, I would suggest that uh, uh, more and more there's more expose on how uh, many of the amenities were um, that we enjoy here, I say we, uh, were also enjoyed by the Romans and the Greeks and uh, and the, it be what we call Southwestern Asia or the Middle East and Asia, running water, central heating, things like that. They may not have done it the same way, but also the climate was different. And I, I believe that they had it optimized for their weather and climate at the time. Um, I think that if someone was living in malcontent with their mud hut and dirt floor, they could uh, put the, their name on a waiting list of subscribing as a slave <clears throat> to someone who did have that, which was also very common. People do that now. When you live in a city, you're called a resident, which is essentially a, a political property. So and you registered at birth. And you have the birth certificate is exactly the same as any other commercial title. So just because you're not called a slave doesn't mean that you're legally don't have that status. And I'm speaking to the people of the modern world. <clears throat> you know, you, you hear it in art and you hear it in, in passing, you know, I feel like a slave or this or that. Well, it's because you really are legally. Um, most people in the Western world, well, actually, most people on the planet are legally enslaved, me, meaning their chattel property of some kind of fictional uh, political body. Political juridical fiction is what you call a country. <clears throat> so it's really difficult to communicate uh, the contrast regarding certain things because the certain things haven't changed. There's no contrast, for example, with a current person uh, or human being living in the city um, and someone who was a slave living in a castle where the amenities were already provided. There's no legal difference between them. Um, so I would suggest that uh, the in, the type of industry again that brings it more pop makes it more popular and more conventional now perhaps didn't exist similarly because of the the low the the quality would would be diminished. So it was whether we provide it to everyone in low quality or just provide it to less than everyone with higher quality, and okay. they opted usually for that. And so. I think most people today would equate quality with convenience, the idea that I can go and get the thing that fulfills a need that is immediate to me. But you seem to be speaking of a quality that's different. Well, you could just look at what they call the grid, both the water municipalities, let's say, you know, water, freshwater, sewer and electricity. The quality of, of, of all of that is very, very low compared to the water that the ancients enjoyed and uh, the electricity that the ancients enjoyed. Uh, the ancients enjoyed electricity as a as a fun demonstration. They didn't run power outlets and things like that. Uh, they were more agrarian. They didn't usually use the the nighttime um, as as people with an electrical grid do use. Uh, and that's another discussion, perhaps, with the electrical grid. But let's just uh, what's easier to contemplate, perhaps, is um, the water grid. Uh, running water through straight pipes destroys the quality of the water and also they're adding chemicals to it uh, that that uh, are supposedly to prevent pathogens where if you look at the ancient cultures they knew that the water had to move how water has to move in an undulating way it had to be exposed to some air some light 
and uh, it, it required a more of a biological biogeometry or um, uh, let's say biomimicry in movement other the water otherwise the water would breed pathogens and be unhealthful to those that consumed it this was very well known in all ancient cultures up until just a few hundred years ago so again uh, with modern industry and the uh, engineering they could have opted for using those methods but they opted not to because again the ideology of providing it fast quick and cheap and you provide it as a convention to the populace uh, is negated by the engineering Mm. Well, did you do you see any sign of the gods approving of those kinds of societies and the way that they operated? Yes, of course. And also the gods that are approved of this society, I would say, are more on, on the malevolent side. And it's a, it's a big subject. And uh, uh, one can say, well, well, the ancients with all their gods were just delusional, crazy and ignorant. Or we could just consider uh, what they've memori- what, what has reached us today, what has been memorialized from back then is, is uh, somewhat valid. And uh, what you'll actually discover as we're talking about ancient civilizations or civilizations at large, this is another civilization, a parallel one, a society, if you will, uh, of the unseen. So I think uh, this is just a private commentary, but I think this entire series is futile to the average listener. Uh, And it'll it'll be jam-packed with very valuable information to those who understand the, the nature and reality of the gods, civilization, and society, and within the many levels that they have. So we can continue just speaking on, on the gods regarding various subjects if uh, anyone has a, a firm grasp on it. But if you don't have a firm grasp on it, it might sound kind of elusive and always try to plant what I say back down into being secular. And uh, again, just to maybe, if we were to sum all this up, I'm going to say that it's the unseen that controls the scene. Uh, just as anything else. No, I hear you. Um, That's definitely something that we'll be highlighting more as time goes on. Um, Another thing that I've noticed is that it was quite common for ancient societies to be explicitly tiered, like you had the king at the top and the slave at the bottom, and then the aristocracy and the merchants and the workers in between. And the consensus seemed to be that those at the top were not only better off because they had more stuff, but they were better than the masses below them, period. Because like even in the Athenian democracy, the real majority were the slaves and the women and the children and the manual laborers. And those people were never held in high regard by their leaders or the elites. But in modern times, it's the opposite. Democracy is said to be king and society is all about the people and we're supposedly more humane and sophisticated as a result. Can you talk about what the fallacies in that kind of view might be? Well, I'm not even going to touch that. I'll just say very simply, it's it's all deception. You're actually more enslaved and, and uh, let's say, ideologically, uh, legally, lawfully, uh, in terms of your freedoms and liberties, you're far worse now than you ever, ever have been. It's just that you don't know it. That's a huge subject to go on. Because a slave in ancient times knew he was a slave, or a slave today doesn't calls himself a citizen, or a resident, or a person, or whatever. There are no free here, – here, let's just say it this way. From a lawful and legal perspective, the only free people that are left on earth are maybe some people, the Pashtun tribes are of Afghanistan and northern Pakistan, um, the Turag people in southern Libya, northern Sahara, let's say, uh, some of the people that live on some of the Polynesian islands, uh, maybe some of the Inuit in the northern Canadian territories, and that's about it. I wouldn't say there are a million free people out of the seven and a half billion plus that are supposedly recorded by the World Bank. I, I wouldn't say that there's a million free people on the planet. I'd say it's probably a third of that, maybe less. And the the the, the it's it's actually repugnant to see how ignorant people are regarding um, their status as as beings. And on the other hand, it shows you how glorious the those that control the earth how brilliant they are in uh, creating such a perception. I do wonder what we might mean by freedom, though, because if we look at the ancient world, they were very brutal and didn't mind victimizing their neighbors. And so you could call yourself a free person back then, but if the Athenians march into your country and they try to take it and you try to 
negotiate with them, they'll just laugh at you and take it anyway. So is it really like to be a slave today, but to have access to the conveniences and some latitude of movement and, and action, whereas if you're a postune or a pygmy somewhere in, I don't know, Australia or living in the, the Sahara Desert, there are certain restrictions that are going to be imposed on you, even though you could call yourself a free person in the way that, say, an American might not. But what really is the practical difference if the American can get up and has this latitude of movement and action that perhaps some other people don't? The other, whether the practical ones, again, are based on ideology, what do you find practical in your everyday life? Uh, many free people, for example, will never be uh, considered about losing their freedom they never, or their rights. They, what they might be concerned, uh, uh, concerned about is being attacked, enslaved, or killed. But uh, free people will never say we're, we might lose their taking our rights away. That, that'll never happen. Only a slave can say that um, when you're limited that way. Then they, that's why it's a matter of ideology. But for practical purposes, to be a, a free creature on the uh, surface-dwelling earth inhabitant, you're an agrarian creature that is uh, foraging... Uh, hunting or producing food and clothing and shelter for most of your waking hours. That is basically the limitations of being a human. The industrialization and what we call in the modern sense the business people and the artists and the musicians and the philosophers and from ancient times or whatever that had a, a time to not do that every day were part of a society that just divvied up those, those uh, tasks to uh, a group of people so the other group of people would be freed up from those so they can do other things. Um, and when you're uh, in a non-industrial, when you don't, for example, setting where you don't have like the people that I mentioned, they're quite happy to each fend for themselves to a certain degree. They still have some industry, minor you know, meaning, you know, uh, cooperative uh, things that uh, one person will do. And the old idea of a baker, a, a blacksmith, uh, or a basket weaver, or a potter, uh, of course, specialized trades can expand uh, where people no longer have to consider doing those things where uh, a specialized group will do them. But in the sense, the way it is done today um, on, a, on, let's say, on a global level is very different uh, than the way it was considered then, because now there, the quality is not an issue. People think by buying, quote unquote, elite consumer goods like Ferraris or uh, diamonds or you know, Gucci bags or whatever is a high quality item. It's not. That is a fashion trend. Um, and what I'm speaking of is the everyday quality of your food, clothing and shelter, you see, uh, is, is greatly diminished. I mean, if anyone knows about food, for example, try to find uh, some on the market vegetables that are delicious and nutritious. Or bread that is delicious and nutritious. Now, as most people don't know, right, because the generations of a degrading state or uh, a, a wonderful water that when you drink it is refreshing and invigorating. Most people don't know that about that. It's been there have been so many generations removed. When I say so many generations, at least uh, minimum two and anywhere between four to ten generations removed from all of that. So again, um, I think the, the contrast here between the ancients and the, and the current civilization, which I started off saying how this one will also end up like that, um, is not a matter of contrast because they're ancient and we're not. The contrast is qualitative. It's purely qualitative. Um, and it doesn't mean that if you go and live on a modern farm today, you're going to get quality either. As a matter of fact, most farmers, if you know any farmers anywhere in the world, they have a very, very high rate of death through toxic chemicals, uh, exposure, uh, toxicity, and uh, farming accidents. That's something to think about. So even the farming industry that's supposed to provide, you know, is, is in the same with the water industry. There's people who work in the water industry that die of chemical poisoning and exposure. Just think about that. Indeed, it's quite the indictment. Well, let's look at the broader picture of ancient empires and civilizations. I think Western society is very invested in the idea of Greece and Rome as the birthplace of their civilization, and most other empires, or at least ancient empires, fall into the shadow of that. Maybe ancient Persia or Egypt get mentioned because they interacted with the Greeks and the Romans a lot, or because of the biblical narrative. But beyond that, most people's knowledge of empires falls off pretty badly. Um, in your studies, 
which empires have you come across that were noteworthy for their knowledge or technology or their achievements aside from say the big four big five egypt greece rome persia uh, well, here is another way to think about it. The ones that you mentioned are what academia is kind of flashing in front of everyone as how things are. There were many empires, for example, uh, big and small, that each had their specialty. Like, for example, the, the Assyrian Empire or from Nineveh, their specialty was war. When they needed uh, something or wanted to develop something, they didn't do it themselves. They just simply conquered those who, order, who had already done it, Right. So each one had their own specialty, and uh, it was all based uh, also around, uh, it wasn't just a matter of business, it was based around their patron deity or matron deity. You know, and it was basically the priests that had organized the laws and the rules uh, from that patron or matron deity, where, you know, most people think of the Roman gods, for example, and uh, they what escapes them is that uh, for most of, well, let's say for over 100 to 200 years, probably more than that, the, um, the official religion was Mithraism of Rome, which came from Persia. So, you know, uh, you can look at the, 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 these were not standalone empires. They were more like geographical entities, if that's another way to say it. The standalone ones were the ones that had a radical ch a difference in ideology, like, for example, the Parthians and the Seleucid Empire, which is not spoken of, which was, mo which was actually larger than the Roman Empire in Toto, but specifically not because they had subdivided uh, kings and, and other, let's say, societies within that empire, uh, which was basically Western Asia all the way up to Asia during the time of the height of Rome and uh, the Greek empires. Um, there are also empires, for example, uh, in Northern Africa that were not Egyptian. Actually, they were in, you've heard of Hannibal, you know, it was a big contrast between him and the Romans. So I think that the empires that we, that we've been shown are not these stark contrasts, but they're more like geographical entities that cooperated to a certain degree and also warred to a certain degree. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned in the past a little bit about the Minoans and the Etruscans as people that might have done things that were noteworthy or maybe what they would call self-describe as heroic. And that kind of gets glossed over, I feel, also. The Age of Heroes. It was an age, yeah. It was something that was lasted long enough that it was, and it was extreme enough to be noted as such. It was kind of like the nuclear age in modern times. Like you were, well, you were, uh, you were not on the map unless you had detonated a, a big nuke or something, right? In modern times, right? Back in those days, if you didn't have a hero, or someone like a demagogue or someone that had supernatural powers that was born of a woman, you you didn't make it to the map, and a lot of that has been erased. But fortunately, a lot of the Greek heroism and the Minoan and all that had been popularized before they could erase the rest. But most cultures did have their their hero. Even, I should say, even now in Saturday morning cartoons still. So, I've noticed another interesting thing where if you treat the Middle East as the center of the world, which is not entirely unfounded to do, and you consider the Western world as what's west of the Middle East and the Eastern world as what's east of it, then you see a certain development where things become more secular and spiritually unrefined the more you go west, thanks to materialism and so-called Abrahamic religions. And the further east you go, the more they preserve their indigenous culture and religions in spite of the Western cultural impositions in modern times. So the Chinese still have their Taoism and their Confucianism and their medicine and their Tai Chi, whilst many of the modern Greeks don't even know what their ancient martial art, Pancration, is. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for many European countries. What are your thoughts on that sort of discrepancy between the West and the East and how they preserve ancient knowledge? Oh, how they preserve it? Well, again, it's whatever. Uh, if you get to the, the the world dominion point, which is the post-Napoleonic era, it was what was decided, you know, what card was played on the table, who will keep what. Because lest we forget that the communist era, what tried to, uh, the, the bringing in the advent of the communist era in the 20s, 30s, 40s, well, it's actually more like in the 40s and 50s, was to eliminate all of the ancient arts. And there was somewhat of a revival recently. So China has been drained. And also a comment since I go by the Greek 
anyone who thinks that the Greeks living in Greece right now have anything to do with the ancient Greeks is severely deluded. Uh, Greece had gone through a cultural and brain drain uh, over 2,000 years ago. There are no real ancient Greeks in Greece, uh, as, we, as we say that. So the, the real Greeks uh, versus the modern Greeks are everywhere else but Greece. So I just wanted to throw that in. And also the Eastern culture had their drain with communism. Uh, even the Falun Gong and all that uh, Tai Chi that's still uh, being heavily monitored and diluted. And what most Westerners consider to be ancient arts are, are heavily diluted. And that would go, then that would be a discussion into the mystery schools or the occulted, you know, secret uh, societies. That's where th those things are preserved. But uh, I don't think there's any preservation under this world dominion principle that we've uh, that the world has been experiencing for the past uh, 200 to 300 years. I think it's just a matter of what's been allowed. The world has been divided by a small group of people, and they just review each geographical section and culture um, and, uh, and supposed nation state and say what will allow them to maintain or not. So this is way down the line. Um, this is in terms of what's been preserved. It's like having a bowl of soup and dumping it into a lake. And just because you dump the bowl of soup into the lake, you still that lake is now soup. Not really. It's so diluted it doesn't resemble a bowl of soup anymore. I hear what you're saying. Um, I kind of well with preservation. I think there's also the geographical aspect of when you look at European countries. There's so much migration that's taking place within Europe that it's it's a completely different continent from like half millennia to half millennia. Whereas if you look at the Chinese, they've been pretty consistent in being able to maintain their hold on that area for 2000 plus years and maintain a culture that even though it's diluted at this point, still has some vestiges of things that you can research and find useful stuff there, wouldn't you say? Actually, I would say no. Not in the open. Yes, if you were to search hard enough, not in the open. It, it would be it would be tucked away, yeah, but it wouldn't be uh, overt. Okay. Well, um, that's still, I, I'd say, something that surpasses a lot of st stuff that you can find in the West, where if you dig for ages, it's hard to come across things that are sublime. Okay, so on one hand, we have empires, and then on the other hand, we have civilizations, and the two are different, right? So, like, empires seek to expand and absorb the jurisdiction of other nations into themselves, and civilizations generally don't. So when you compare ancient empires like the Assyrians, who were expansive, versus, say, the Etruscans, who, they fought the Greeks and the Romans, but they weren't a conquering people. Do you find that empires versus civilizations had any distinction in their accomplishments or knowledge? I think that is a cosmic that is a cosmic uh, turning point. In other words, each age is delineated, each each large swath of time. Well, let's just say from 50 to 100 years to 1,000 years at a time, uh, even 400 years at a time. You'll, you'll notice that there are cycles that 20-year, uh, 40-year, 80-year, 250-year, 400-year, 1,000-year cycles that, that societies, empires, and civilizations go through. And uh, I think it's uh, you'll know what the gods are deciding to do when these things change, when when there's an empire formed where there wasn't and uh, and where there an empire was and now there isn't. It's basically um, what's been deemed to be done, let's say, uh, cosmically or non secularly first. So we're just seeing the results of it, unless you understand what's called prophecy, where these things are talked about before they happen. Um, no, I, I think that if you look at, uh, you can do, uh, I haven't done this in a while, but anyone can go on, on, uh, the stupid rectangle, the internet, the computer and put in, uh, ancient civilizations no one has ever heard of or unknown ancient societies or non-popular ancient societies or again, ancient, ancient civilizations no one has heard of. There's probably websites that list some of them and, um, You'll look around, and, and the thing is, they don't actually do any work for you. You're gonna have to do the work on your own. Like uh, I know, if you study, for example, the civilization of well, it's considered Greek. Uh, there are islands off of Greece, the Kikladian. Look up Kikladian art, however you want to spell it, with a C or a K. Uh, the Kikladian uh, art, and you'll see like stuff that should be in MoMA or the Met, like super ultra modern art sculpture. Right. And this is thousands of years ago. 
And then you'll, there are other, uh, I think the Vake or Vivke culture in northern Germany, what's known as northern Germany, northern Europe right now, that had similar artwork at the similar time. So they really stretched far and wide, and they even South American art that looks very similar at that time. So were they an empire? That, that type of ideology and art had been found at that time all over the world, or were they just a civilization? I think imperialism is a show of force, which back then would have been armies and navies that um, can travel in mass and attack from a distance and up close. Like, for example, an example of empire today is an aircraft carrier. An aircraft carrier is a totally useless piece of uh, tactical equipment. It's only used with certain strategies. It's to show colonial power or imperial power. Because it's been shown in war games, for example, that you could take out uh, – and there's no such thing as an aircraft carrier, by the way. And not that the, the actual ship doesn't exist, but it's always a carrier group. It needs several destroyers and frigates uh, to protect it and fuel it uh, and support it. But it's been commonly shown that that can be eliminated with uh, just a silkworm missile and a few speedboats. Uh very very quickly and effectively uh so basically is was this true also in ancient times yes they had very large cumbersome armies armies all you had to do was uh inflict a pandemic on them or cut off some of their supply lines and instead of having uh 30,000 or 20,000 forward marching troops you've got a, a mob of 20,000 or 30,000 people that's why the romans act, uh, very often did what's called decimation if they didn't obey or they lost a battle. They, the, the surviving group, uh, one, one out of ten men were killed, as the word decim denotes one out of ten as a punishment. So I don't know uh, if, if there's a definitive point um, uh, between civilization and empire other than one boasts to have strength over others and the other doesn't would be one way to think of it. I see what you're saying. And I mean, if you're a, if you're a nation that isn't striving to expand and be belligerent in that kind of way, then perhaps that does create a sort of incubation for more subtle arts and cultural expressions that if you're always trying to go to war with people might not come forth, I guess. But in terms of knowledge of the supernatural, if, if let's say we shift the focus from art and culture to knowledge of the gods, were there certain ancient empires or civilizations that you would say were more sublime and advanced in that aspect as far as interfacing with the gods? Sure. Well, you could take the story of Troy. I believe Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter to set the ships a sail because there was no wind. And you could go on and on and on about that. Uh, it's still done today, by the way. It might be a shocker to most people, but the, well, for example, when the American military launches a campaign, they do sacrifices as well, human sacrifices. It's not done publicly, and you're not, and it's guarded that this information doesn't go out. And then the sacrifices continue, but with the civilians that they usually attack. And this goes with any, with any modern army. Um, in most cases, I, I would suggest that even the Asians partake in that. You know, the the kamikaze in Japan were actually human sacrifice to evoke war gods. It wasn't because they didn't have the technology to fly something into a, an American ship. They had to also sacrifice a, a very well-abled uh, fighting soldier. Yes, I've, seen, I've heard a lot of accounts of this, that there were certain battles that were lost in the middle of the 20th century because they would summon storms and it would wipe out the opposing fleet or army. Right, or, or there, there are gods for disease, for famine, for battle uh, gains and losses. There, yeah, there, there's a god for everything. Take your choice. And uh, there are people still alive today that are well-versed in that. But uh, in, in another way, uh, the people themselves, if they understand the forces and the energies behind what the gods use, can actually work in that realm, of course, in a minor way but also influence outcomes without going to the gods. But typically, the gods are the fastest and easiest way to do barter and have control, is have someone else, you know, uh, more senior to you, I should say, in ability, do it. And it does seem to be the case that for most cultures, there's a key or some type of catalyst in human sacrifice that really does jumpstart this um, 
activity within the spiritual realm that really get the gods to do stuff for you. Do you ever see empires or civilizations that were able to access that same power without the human sacrifice component? Unknown. Unknown, because it would have to be closely examined and you'd have to have behind the scenes information, direct information, because it's very subtle. What I mean by very subtle, meaning that they're, they might say they're doing this and that and they have this wonderful tactic or whatever or strategy, but it, behind the scenes, there still is a human sacrifice. Right. Okay. Um, part of the reason I'm asking this stuff is to see how much one can read out of the fact that some of the ancient empires seemed more apt to conquer than others. And I wonder whether, say, the Greeks or the Persians who ruled over some of the largest areas had a particular favor or ordinance from their gods that was unusual. Because otherwise, why couldn't anybody just rise up and conquer the whole, whole continents? You know, I don't think the Indian empires ever did that, for example. They, they did, but they had a different ideology. Uh, remember, the, the ideology uh, is, is basically greed, like the Sun Tzu principle. You know, the, the, the reason there's conflict and war is because of personal gain, a desire for personal gain. But once you, you get what you thought you wanted or you actually achieved it, you realize that it's very expensive to maintain. So there, certain cultures had the wisdom to understand that conquering was not all that it was you know, uh, advertised to be. It's very expensive. That's a good point. We talked about it a little before, but I just want to wrap up this point in terms of technological advances. Um, since modern people seem to think that they're special in that regard, can you talk about some of the um, inventions and or developments of ancient times that might have indicated a superior understanding of things? Because I've, I've come across a lot of books that will lay out things that were invented in the ancient world that clearly don't e exist, like even a shade of those things anymore. Um, and there's a lot of knowledge concerning things like chemistry in particular, I think, with like poisons and antidotes and warfare tools like Greek fire, where they've just completely disappeared. And so could you name a few things that you've come across that you thought were noteworthy? I think I think those would probably be, be the best and also how to deal with the, the entities known as the gods again. I'll give you an example in a minor way. You could look this up on uh, the Internet searches. There was a group uh, studying paranormal activity and tribalism. And they had gone to Vietnam uh, fairly, well, I shouldn't say recently, maybe 30, 40 years ago. And they found some people living in the villages that were able to summon demons or entities that would protect them in the forest. Uh, and nothing could harm them. Me meaning like if, let's say, for example, it's just, uh, and I think this example is given, during the American War, the Vietnam War there, uh, these tribal people would just walk right through a firefight and not get hurt by any of the projectiles or bullets or firebombs or anything where those that didn't have the this protection uh were were hurt or affected and you could just research uh you know tribal demons summoning in vietnam and there's a there's actually the reason i'm mentioning this is because it's an academic group that went out and did the research on this and these let's say uh vietnamese medicine men in the jungle were able to summon uh, a spiritual entity that would give them protection or harm those that they wanted harmed. Um, and this, again, the reason I'm citing this is because it was a study done by an academic group, right? If that gives it any validity and it's actually published online, just uh, research it. Um, or, or I, I don't have any specifics other than that. So if it can be done by these, you know, let's say jungle people in Vietnam, because they literally are jungle people, they live in the jungle, the deep jungle away from everyone. Uh, it doesn't mean that it can't be more, um, metropolitan it could not have in other words i would say that this type of spiritual access and protection and power can be gained whether you're in the jungle or in the city by any culture right so the ultimately that it would be the the ultimate super weapon um and the the stuff that you mentioned the, the mechanistic stuff and the chemical stuff I think is even more developed today to a certain degree because of the focus and more people on it and also carryover from ancient times. I would be very, uh, a caveat would be that if they tell you no one knows how it was done is, is just a cover up and people accept it, it's plausible, right? Uh, I mean, I've even said that uh, before, I've, working around people with trade secrets and they would ask me, you worked with such a person, you know how he did that. I says, I really don't know. Instead of saying, well, I do know, but I can't tell you. Right. Uh, they're both 
plausible, but saying I really don't know is far more plausible. Look at uh, politicians. I can't recall when they're at hearings, right? That's plausible. That's fine. I can't recall. What are you going to do? Well, torture is one way to get it out of them. But anyway. Yeah, I think it's interesting, this thing where the people that still have access to this technology or tradition of evoking the gods, I kind of feel like the corporations that do it or the governments that do it, they always have to hide and do it in secret and make it this almost like a burdensome thing that you have to commit to the secret society, otherwise you can't get it. But if you go and talk to the jungle people, they'll do it right in front of you sometimes. Well, the corporate and the government people will do it in front of you also, depending on who you are, but they won't go on CNN and do it. Let's okay. just say this. I've seen certain corporate people show me things that shouldn't be, right? I'm not going to mention, you know, Halliburton or anything like that. Hmm. But then there's also this aspect of the people that can do those things. They, they, it almost seems like they have a limitation, at least socially, in how they move. Like, I remember seeing a documentary about Qigong in China, and there's these people that do Qigong healing, and the extent to which they do it, it almost it has to be called supernatural to the secular mind but the guy who the guys who do it are always tied down to this tradition of no you can't take it out of your your region or you can't take it out of the country or you can't talk to the westerners about it and if you do you'll be cursed or something well yeah there's um let, let's just look at it very specifically if you're dealing with a particular entity that particular entity is a singular let's say quote unquote individual uh and most individuals, whether they're human or not, or gods, focus on, um, I say most, focus on one action at a time. Like we're doing this uh, podcast right now. Could you be watching TV, playing a video game and having another conversation at the same time? And the answer is possibly be very difficult or no. So if you're dealing with the supernatural world, you'd probably want to monopolize it uh, or with that entity just to get, uh, quote-unquote, undivided attention. Because most of these deities and entities or gods are not uh, omniscient and omnipresent. They're, they're, we're still talking about like what's called the, the second heaven. These are, we're, not dealing, we're not talking about the god of the gods, which can be at all places at all times, which is, I don't think we've touched on. We're talking now, this is going to be a surprise to many people that the the god, the realm of the gods is such a realm, uh, but if you were to go into that realm and coexist with them and ask them, do you have a god, they would say, yes, we do have gods, and there would be in another realm, right? So this is, I think, that needs to be touched on as well sometime here. Yeah, certainly we will do that. That's reserved for a future episode, but it doesn't hurt to um, tease it out at an earlier point, like now. But okay, let's let's keep it going and look at some of the religious aspects of ancient the ancient world i think the earliest civilization is often claimed to be the sumerians at around 3000 bc although the danube valley civilization does predate that at around 5000 to 4000 how far back can we go in search of accounts stating that mankind is ruled by a society of gods in another realm or from another realm because i don't think that it's so much a religion as it was the only known paradigm for understanding anything until at least the middle ages well, here, here's the thing. I have a personal peeve about how, how old something is or how far back you can, because ultimately, uh, when you're when you try to think in a higher state, you see everything happening at the same time. In other words, even if you're studying something that's ancient, let's say just just say three thousand years ago or five thousand or ten thousand years ago, let's say, uh, you you're dealing with it in the present. Let's say you have a lot of information or a little bit of information of a society from 10,000 years ago, let's say. You're dealing with it in the present state. Now, how you're dealing with it is, well, can I borrow anything and use it now? Or I'm just a, you know, I have to go tell someone else about this or I'm a, I'm a historian or, or however, or I want to look at their art or their military, or whatever. You're dealing with it in the present. So how long ago they were is not as important as how you can deal what how you're dealing with them in the present the only time i think that the, how long ago they were is important is if you're trying to create historicity you know a timeline but most people don't do that you know you go to a historian for that and and i would i wouldn't uh, think they're accurate at all at best uh so i would say as far back as you can go 
And if you have a working knowledge of what you're looking for to get from them, you will eventually figure out really how far back they were or not, unless they're completely hidden. Well, I mean, the Proto-Indo-Europeans, as they're called, are often cited as the earliest European culture from 4th millennium BC-ish. When I look at the Proto-Indo-European gods, as at least as they're put forth by archaeology, I'm wondering if that is perhaps the earliest pantheon that we can point to, or at least one of the earliest, since many of those types of deities seem to occur in later civilizations. We have things like the overarching sky god called, uh, I'm going to butcher their names, but Deus Pater, to, to anglicize the pronunciation. And that becomes the archetype for Zeus or Jupiter, or the Hausos, the dawn goddess that the Greeks seem to call Eos and the Saxons called Oster. Right or the divine twins motif or the sun and moon gods. Like, what's your takeaway from those kinds of archetypes? Well, those archetypes are like the politicians of their day. They were all geographically bound. Uh, we'll get a very deep sense that they have. Uh, there's a uh, some we'll call it cosmic geography or geog. The Earth has been divvied up and um, dedicated to certain deities and entities that the people either they people discovered or the entities just came you know out of the woods or out of the desert and said hey here i am this is who i am you know um i think that it's uh geographical in other words when he let's just take zeus for example there is no overarching zeus over the whole planet it was uh, strictly limited to that geography because there were concurrent other gods at the same time in other places and we're, again, we're speaking of gods now in the in the the first uh, heavenly realm, or the, you know this you know the second heaven as as defined, let's say, or the, the the realm of the gods, you know the general gods, not their god. So, again, I just want to bring that up because people have to remember, uh, there, it's not as simple as you've been shown on Saturday morning cartoons or church or even as academia or religion puts it out. Because oh, here's another thing I need to put in. Whenever we're talking about gods, I think you mentioned this also. There's no religious affiliation here, and uh, if one has, if one is going to consider anything when they hear the word "world religion," the word "religion" is that it is a state entity. In other words, all modern religions and even ancient religions are state entities. The reason you know about "quote unquote" religion when the gods, or how little you know about them is because it is uh, allowed by the state. And if you, what do you know about the modern state, uh, right? So that's why when it comes to, you know, look at the American culture and God we trust. I mean, whoa, what an, that is such a ridiculous statement, you know. Um, I mean, which God are you talking about, right? And who are, you know, what does it even mean? It's meaningless to say that. It's, for example, when you walk around in the world today, it doesn't matter what language, uh, they don't really say this in Asia. In Asia, they say the power of the heavens, but they ask people if you believe in God. That is the most ridiculous question I have ever heard. You know, which one? There is such a multitude and diversity just to say, do you believe in God? And to take it presumptively that you're talking about the most high God is also ridiculous because there is another specific a uh, whole specific ideology le leaning towards that, or him, I should say. So I just wanted to toss that in there, if that helps at all. Yeah, of course it does. And just to develop it a little bit more as far as the interplay that exists between the human society and the society of the gods, um, on one hand, the ancient cultures understood the primacy of the gods, but I think that by the time ancient Greece becomes a dominant power, and possibly before, we're already seeing some version of so-called atheism present itself in their literature, where like, you know, the sophists were notorious for that, and so was the philosopher Epicurus. So what are we to make of the fact that even though ancient cultures professed to believe in the gods, as early as the first millennium BC, it's evident that the gods are almost becoming like an obligatory tradition or like a far-off abstraction? Well, in order to deny something, you have to establish that it, it exists first. You can't deny something that doesn't exist. That's the interesting thing about atheism, but he, which is another religion. Again, again, it's a state religion. But and most atheists are very religious because they ask for justice, which is the ancient goddess um, Justitia. So we're talking about also serious mental disorders with your average human. But uh, I would suggest that um, the uh, 
uh, if you study those the sophists and the philosophers of that time, especially when it when the brain drain happened and they all went over to Rome, um, like people think uh, Plato and all these guys were Greek, they weren't. I mean, they were everywhere but Greece, you know, uh, India, you know, Sicily, places like that. But anyway, uh, if you didn't uh, sac- bring a lamb to the local whatever state office as a sacrifice to Hercules, you were fined. I mean, how do you put that in context? That it's uh, there's an administrative aspect that you just have to do blah blah blah, whether you believe in it or not. And it is it is totally uh, and completely um, acceptable that the humans use uh, secularly, you know, the demands on the society through uh, in the name of their gods to gain for themselves. So, for example. If you you were fined if you didn't bring a lamb on Sunday to be sacrificed to Hercules by the state um, in Rome. If you didn't do that, you were fined. And the people that were levying the fines and accepting those lambs didn't believe in Hercules at all. On a higher level, that was actually still approved by those gods because if it wasn't, it would be stopped. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's it's something that I've wondered a lot because you see these representations of certain gods that are put forth and you don't even really know if that god is still alive. Like Right. Like is Hercules the one who is saying sacrifice to Hercules or is it some other god that's saying that? Some other priest uh, whatever that had a direction or dictate from another god. Mhm. Remember by that time also Greece well, I'm, I, this is more like Rome was was in full on the official religion was Mithraism, which came out of Persia. So it gets it's sort of complicated. Uh, it's sort of as, as complicated as uh, and not as today in modern politics, everyone's uh, wants to spread democracy. Right. It doesn't mean it's a meaningless term, but it still catches people. So years in minds, like for example, one of the most oppressive states that exists today is known in the Western world as North Korea. Well, North Korea is defined as the Democratic Republic of North Korea. So, so these things become meaningless, but they do exist and they do function with certain terminology. But there is a cosmic being behind that. It, let's just sum it up for people again, because. If if you look at uh, civilizations as having a life of their own, studying ancient civilizations, is is it is it a living civilization? Meaning, is it functioning as such, or is it a past one that is dead and no longer functioning as that? You see, so uh, like we could say today, there are no ancient civilizations that we know of that are functioning on an imperial level, but you could say a lot of the Western world uses uh, civil Roman law. Um, out of the uh, out of Rome, and they're using the time of the that the Vatican uses, but are they adherent to everything else? And the answer is no. And the same was also back then. Uh, you could look at uh, the conquest of Judea by Rome. Uh, they still used a lot of their laws. In most cases, you know, they're minor uh, minor laws, not na- nationwide laws, because they were conquered by Rome. Um, and they functioned accordingly, uh, as as any other Roman, or a, a, you know, a, a colony would have, with certain exceptions. You know, in the State Department, they call it a, an area book. Uh, if you're working a, in a diplomatic capacity and you're going to be sent to a country, they give you what's called an area book, and it has the lists of the customs and traditions of the people, so you're familiar, so you don't go there and offend someone, right? Because something that's commonly accepted in one culture is not accepted in another. It could be a death offense in some other cultures. So you have to know the areas, but I'd say that it's been blurred and obscured always, um, but because that's just the way that um, humans roll. Uh, humans don't want accuracy or, or uh, intelligent conversation or to consider things uh, with precision. I also want to make a correction. I said Plato earlier. I meant Pythagoras, you know, who wasn't Greek, right? Basically, he spent very little time in Greece. But I mean, I said Plato, I think I recall, and I meant Pythagoras, right, who studied in the East and went everywhere but Greece pretty much. Okay, so we'll look at um, one more topic before wrapping up, which is that of mystery schools and secret societies. Um, so let's start with the mystery school aspect. Uh, I'm just going to give a little exposition to set up 
my understanding, and then I'm going to ask you to elaborate. Because I recently heard a lecture where someone elaborated on what he called the great, quote-unquote, the great shift. So it's a familiar theme in esoteric lore that mankind is living in a fallen or regressed state because he doesn't have open access to the supernatural. Um, so even if there are gods, then we clearly aren't close to them anymore. But at one point in history, things were different because man was in a spiritual golden age where everyone knew how to properly interface with the gods. So the great shift was the pivot away from that where, quote-unquote, religion suddenly became a thing where you don't have direct knowledge based on experience, so you have to believe in the gods. Because if you believe in something, it's because you can't see it or you don't know about it. But if you're actually directly living it, then you don't need belief. So when open access to the supernatural reality was taken away, mankind now has to rely on the priestly class to go and get the information from the quote-unquote other side through certain rituals or whatever, and then transmit it back to the public, and that's still the age that we're living in. But it seems to me that mystery schools developed from this dynamic where the gods at some point would only speak through chosen representatives who then wanted to keep things secret, and so you get these cults. Do you recognize that idea? Do you know when it happened? Um, can you add anything it's, to that exposition? It's valid. I, I would say that that would have happened, um, in other words, out of public view, overtly uh, around the time of Hezekiah. If you want to pin it back back into using the Judean geographical uh, historical time. So what would that be, about 600 B.C.? around the axial time, I would suggest around 600 BC is when it would kind of faded away out of public view. In other words, the direct interaction, not, not to say that there were no priests still interceding for mankind, which is what the gods demanded because you had to be prepared a certain way, right? It's just like the, for example, football, right? Just because you like to play football, you can't go to the Super Bowl and jump on the field. You'll be, you know, escorted off or dragged off and beaten up by the crowd because you're not part of that elite group to play uh, play that game at that time. So the, you always had certain times where certain elite groups it, it took a lifetime of preparation and genealogy to get to. Um, so those, those things have to be considered as well. But in terms of public view, I think around 600 BC is when things started going dark with, with the gods. It doesn't mean that they're not still in effect. And I, the only part uh, of what you said I don't agree with is the fallen state. I, I don't think um, man is in a fallen state at all. I think man is in, an, in a negatively influenced and oppressed state, but not fallen, no. Yeah, no, no, I wasn't saying it. I'm just saying it's a part of esoteric lore. So like the mystery schools and the Gnostics, whatever, That's, they go with that. Yeah, the Gnostics are, I wouldn't listen to anything that they put out of you. Be familiar with it because you're going to come across... The Gnostics were like the, if um, anyone remembers in school, the, and if you were, I'm sorry, I was too, the, the child that no one wanted to play games or didn't want to include in their team sports, right? And uh, you get enough of those children that, that the rest don't want to include. Uh, they form their own little uh, group. Yeah, the Gnostics were basically a spinoff group of that were not entitled uh, to go into the higher levels of what was established as, you know, uh, de deific knowledge and ceremony, and they went out and uh, uh, started their own little thing. But it's, uh, yeah, very simple to see that. But as far as the timeline goes, I guess I was also referring to this notion of not just going through priests to get to the gods, but let's say if you look at the at least the lore that exists, because that's really all that we have, of pre-flood times, there seems to be this idea that at some point you didn't even need the priest. Like it was just you, the right. God is right there, go talk to him. Or you know how to do the sacrifice to summon whomever and just do whatever. Well, it was a question of uh, whether the population was slim enough that it was afforded by the gods to do that because people were far and few in between. And they usually, if you were in a cosmopolitan setting, they pulled you out of that setting and pull, pulled you out into a rural setting to communicate with you or call you out. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a point that I did want to touch on, because even though they, they're they called mystery schools, they weren't really mysteries in ancient times, because everyone knew that Egypt was a center for supernatural information, and that's why Py someone like Pythagoras went there. And so I, I did want to ask about this idea that you had these quote-unquote mages or wizards or whomever that were, you know, highly esteemed, 
and they seem to move around from place to place and never really settle into the city. And I'm kind of wondering where that archetype comes from, um, and you're kind of mentioning it there. The cities were never considered a, a hub for anything other than what cities are known for today. In other words, the, the, nothing ever came out of a city that was considered the city was the place to be. It was places of it was a it was a center focal point where you came and did whatever you did well, and then you left. But typically, you you would have a, a god over that city also. But once you had the god over that city, they already had their liturgy and uh, and whatever they had going on. But to be called on by other gods and to uh, – again, it's a complex um, situation. Like, for example, cities uh, are usually dedicated to a god. When uh, people just – cities in many cases just, just didn't form organically or because a lot of people wanted to be in one place and they said, now it's a city. They actually developed cities before there were cities. They were, they were, there was forethought into it and dedication to a certain god. So I, I might want to retract that you always had to be dealt in a rural setting. I'm just saying in, in, in many annals, you'll find that people were pulled out of the gatherings you know, of large groups of people to be alone with uh, an entity, right? Yeah, I follow you. Touching on what I was asking before, it seemed as if everybody knew about things like the mysteries of Isis or Orpheus or whatever, or Delphi. It's just that if you wanted to join them, you had to meet certain criteria. So when did the mystery schools become this version of secret societies that we see now that are explicitly deceptive and obfuscate their presence? Whereas I don't think they really did that as much before in the past. I think they did. If you go and study things that were written by philosophers, even 2000 years ago, they always talked about things being done in secret. Uh, just anyone could access what was... Uh, let's say, memorialized in what they call the Bible, uh, the high priest entered into the, the most sacred place, the, the Holy of Holies. It was, uh, even though specifications were given in the Bible, we don't know what would happen in there specifically, other than the generality that a high priest goes in at a certain time of year and does these things, but the rest we don't know. You know, you have to look at what they call apocryphal works, uh, what would be like I call fire station writings, you know, because when you were a priest, you didn't go to work in the morning, come home at night. You you stayed there for days on end like a fireman would, right? And you go to work on a Monday and you leave on a Thursday. You sleep there, you live there, you eat there, you wash there. And you, you wrote wrote down annals or, you know, oral traditions, Book of Enoch, Book of the Upright, Book of Jasher, right? Things like that. Um, uh, not to be, you know, to be considered. Uh, those writings should be considered. Everything should be considered, but you should do it with discernment. Mm. Um, yeah, I just have one more question, and then we'll wrap up. Um, sort of, I guess, ending off on this mage topic again. When we talk about some of the prominent mages of all time, I mean, obviously a lot of stuff is lost, but you'll typically get things like Pythagoras come up, or even the Persian Magi might come to mind. Um, but in spite of those people's supernatural awareness, you don't really hear about ancient mages or grandmasters rising up to seize power and conquer nations. It's always the king or military leader who kind of does that. And yet somehow that guy, the military guy, always seems to have an inferior understanding of the supernatural than his priests or his magicians. Do you know why those who had the most sublime knowledge were historically satisfied to either be ad advisors or just have their little groups or be outcasts rather than conquerors? Well, that's that's like the inheritance of the firstborn. It never really works out that way in certain writings. Uh, there's the desire for the philosopher king that never really happened other than maybe Solomon, maybe. Yeah, uh, but no, the, the desire for a philosopher king, which has been put out uh, from the time of ancient Greece, you know, having a wise uh, king, uh, but more than just wisdom, but a working knowledge uh, of of the gods and everything uh, that would affect um, you know his ability to rule over people. Uh, there's there's a saying that uh, you know the creator puts the most basest of men over people, but he doesn't think much about human society. Here, here's the thing also about going back to uh, the people once dealt with the gods and now they're not. You, w once you understand the setting of human humanity, let's say for several ages to be in a fairly pathetic state and you accept that i mean the only request you would have for a god that had the wherewithal to do so is to remove you from the earth think about that for a minute that would be 
the most paramount request if the setting has been established to be fairly pathetic uh, and deplorable wouldn't you want to just be pulled I mean if you fell into a sewer wouldn't your only thought would be to call someone to come and pull you out if you couldn't climb out on your own so that's pretty much the setting that we've been in we, we, meaning we humanity for millennia so the only valid request uh, other than making your life food, clothing, and shelter, and whatever else you might desire according to whatever God you worship's will, would be to remove you from this setting until, you know, this either to another place or until and put you back or, uh, you know, or, or protect you actually from the setting on the earth. And only the most well learned people would make such a request. If you think that things could be made better here it, as they are. And you have it. You have uh, wants that uh, are superior to being removed from the earth because of its pathetic state. You're not well learned, and I could say that with great confidence. But there is this idea, though, of being. You said sewer. I think, right? Like if you fell into the sewer, right? You could still be king of the sewer, though. Um, I think like Spider-Man, you have this, I forget, is it the lizard who just runs the sewers and the, all the beasts there do what he tells them to do? Right. Like, and so that's what the leaders of the world are, kings of the sewer. That's right. Look at all your politicians and kings and whatever, as far back as you want to go, they're ruling over sewer rats in terms of qualitative. And a sewer is defined as a place where waste is dumped onto, right? The, what, what's discarded. And also many of the gods are discarded and many of the spirits and many of the things are, that are uh, people find important are actually discarded uh, things. Again, the, uh, there is a, a world dominion system that's been in place very fervently and very definitely. It's not a deep state, by the way. There's no such thing as people use today. There's no such, that's uh, something that's put out by them as a diversion tactic. Uh, there's... Um, Groups of people that are actually led by non-people, uh, uh, non-humans that rule this planet through people, and uh, they've got everyone believing whatever they want to believe. So there, there's a certain amount of passiveness and calm until it gets too, quote-unquote, expensive or too time-consuming or not worth the effort um, to make a big change. That's why you see right now what they call the end of 2020 on the Pope's work schedule. Uh, what is happening and what will be happening in the near future is because it's just not necessary to keep this delusion and deception that's been going on for the past three or 400 years since the Renaissance, really, uh, it's not necessary anymore. It's time to, for a change, but it's not going to work out the way they, that they, they, they think it's going to work out anyway. So that's another discussion. Yeah. And I think that makes um, for a good rounding off point as far as yeah there are things in the future that have to be elaborated and perhaps we can do that in subsequent episodes um so yeah unless there's anything that you want to wrap up with i think i'm good i got all my questions off my chest oh that's fine uh, i spent my whole life unwrapping so yeah uh getting into the what 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 the cover the thin veil is uh and i hope others do as well no pun intended so all right till the next time then thanks uh we'll do it again yeah, and to everybody who tuned in, thanks again for listening. Um, we'll be back at the next episode with some other topic to dig into. Until the next time.